We love to follow people. We spend a tremendous amount of time on social media, scrolling on our Twitter feeds, Instagram pages, and Facebook timelines, looking for anything to keep us busy. It seems as if we peer into the lives of others just enough, we might become a part of it. I can't even begin to say this enough about the idols of this generation. Paparazzi swarming like mosquitoes to flesh, surrounding these people just to catch a piece of the mystery that is their lives. Thousands of people pay hundreds of dollars for a simple handshake or a photo. We idolize people and things, obsessing over them like they actually might give us something in return. We think we know everything about them when in reality, we know nothing. It's like saying you're friends with a famous athlete just because you can rattle off statistics. If only some of their fame and wealth could somehow drip down into the open mouths of those who feed off them, those who go to great lengths for a wink, a nod, or a smile. Imagine if we followed Jesus like we followed these people. Imagine what would happen if we gave God the time of day he deserves and not just when we felt like it. Imagine if we chased after God like we chased after celebrities, or more importantly, like God chases after us. I think the world would look a little different. The Bible talks about huge crowds of people following Jesus, hundreds, even thousands of people crowding around him constantly. But it's interesting because there wasn't social media to inform them. John wasn't sitting there tweeting, chilling with Jesus by the Sea of Galilee, come by to hear the word, hashtag apostle life. Didn't happen. Instead, the followers heard by word of mouth and they came from miles and miles away just to hear a man, Jesus, speak. Sounds pretty similar to what we see today, doesn't it? But as we know, Jesus is very different than our idols of today. Instead of shooing away cameras and hiding his face, the Son of Man welcomes us in saying, follow me. And the crazy part is that as all these other people will eventually pass away, he will remain. And when we do give God the time he deserves, when we do follow him, when we do allow his infallible love to break through and we pour new wine into new wineskins, everything changes. It's Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. The word of God for the people of God. Let that sink in. I was a weird kid. Um, I am a weird adult, but I was a much more strange child. As I was growing up, one of the things that I liked to do when I would come home from school is I had a VHS tape of the miniseries called The Jacksons, The American Dream. And each day I would put in that miniseries and watch the actors who were pretending to be Michael Jackson and I would try to mimic their dance moves. I was a strange child. 
When I was about 10 or 11, I was um, in love with this New Jack Swing rap group called Another Bad Creation. I'm gonna play you a little clip of Another Bad Creation as I tell you this story. Just let that overtake you. You can't tell from the picture, these guys are like 10 years old. And right now they're rapping about the playground. One day, they all decided to show up to a place called Record and Tape World, which is now where um, the Cool Things store is, Parker Place, um, on Main Street. And I was in a crowd of all these people who had been dutifully informed by OC 104 that another bad creation was coming to town. And I was standing in this group of people waiting for them to show up. And I remember as they were there, they were throwing things out into the crowd. And I was very much entranced by these young gentlemen thinking, if I could only just get this OC 104 visor that they're throwing out into the crowd, my life will be made. And I remember there was a couple of people that were a lot bigger than me in front of me and one of the visors went out into the crowd and they grabbed it. And I probably started crying and they felt sorry for me. And I remember one of them went, reached back and handed me this crazy OC 104 visor that these guys had touched. You can kill that music. That is ridiculous. I also remember in, uh, this was the summer of 1993. The Orioles were good back then. They're good now. They went through a spurt of about 10 years or so when they were terrible. And for Orioles fans, you remember those years. But these were the years when they were really good. And these were also the years when Cal Ripken was coming up on breaking his uh, consecutive game streak. And I remember we would go to a lot of games, and as we would uh, be sitting there around the seventh inning or so, me and a few friends, we would always leave the game and go outside to this gated part of the, the ballpark. And we would go because we knew that after the game, after the guys got showered and after they did their press conferences, they would walk through this gate and go to their cars. It was where everybody parked their cars, except for the good players like Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken. They had secret tunnels so that they didn't have to talk to the little guys like me. But I remember being like on those on those fences waiting for people to show up so I could hand them my hat or my ball or whatever just to get them to, to sign it for me. When I was in California a few years ago, Kate and I would, would go around to different places and like we had a group of friends that would always want to talk about the celebrity sightings that they had and some people had some really good ones like um, Michael Sarah was always out and about around town. He's a really awkward, strange actor, and some of you guys enjoy him. And th there was rumors that he was always down in, in Old Town Pasadena. Also, Buster from Arrested Development was a deacon or an elder in a church in Hollywood, and he would show up a lot at the, the campus bookstore. But I remember one time we were going to see the Avet brothers, and as we were walking from where we parked our car to the Staples Center, um, we saw a crowd of people, and they were going crazy. So Kate and I were like, okay, somebody famous is here. This is gonna be good, this is gonna be really good. And as we got closer, we just saw A.C. Slater doing an interview for Access Hollywood or whatever crazy show he's a part of, and we were kind of let down by that. But we saw all these people just fawning after celebrities, and me in my own life at some points have fallen victim to that. We hear in the Gospel of Mark these words. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. 
This is strange because over the past few weeks, we have seen not people who are um, following Jesus out of admiration and out of excitement, but we've seen people who are following Jesus to try to catch him in the midst of um, wrongdoing. We've seen five different conflict stories throughout these last couple chapters of the book of Mark where the religious leaders at the time would ask questions about Jesus and about his disciples to see what it is that he was doing and to get an explanation because what Jesus was doing at that time did not fit their preconceived ideas, their mold of religion and their understanding of what was there. In Mark chapter two, after Jesus um, heals a paralytic, he issues this proclamation, your sins are forgiven, which to the religious leaders at the time brought about this claim, why does this fellow talk like that? In the next passage, we see Jesus who is eating meals with tax collectors and sinners, people that the general populace at the time would have hated, would have despised, and Jesus was welcoming them and sharing meals with them. And the religious leaders again say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, why is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not? Jesus, why are the people in your circle doing things that don't seem appropriate? Everyone here is fasting and waiting for Messiah or waiting for the kingdom or waiting for something. Why is it that you guys are not doing that? To which Jesus said very subtly, the kingdom is here. You can't put new wine into old wineskins because they'll surely burst. You must put new wine into new wineskins. Again, questions uh, came to the disciples of, of Jesus as they were walking through the fields of grain and picking uh, the heads of corn or other sorts of uh, produce. It says, why are they doing what is unlawful and why is Jesus healing on the Sabbath? All of these conflict stories demonstrate a moment when the Pharisees and the religious leaders could not wrap their mind around the newness of what Jesus was all about. They couldn't wrap their minds around the things that he was doing, the things that he was saying, the things that he was demonstrating right before them that seemed to suggest that God was present and that God was invading and that something new was taking place. As we turn the page into this new section here where Jesus is drawing a crowd, not just to have people question his motives, but he's drawing a crowd of people who are interested in what he's doing, we see acceptance, we see belief. We see intrigue. We see at the core of it something that's very different than what was going on prior to in these other stories of conflict that climaxed in the Pharisees colluding with the Herodians thinking, how can we kill this man that we can't understand and that doesn't fit in our old grid of religion? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Continues, when they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from all regions. Some people think that the inclusion of the places are um, 
important because they reflect not just a Jewish community, but also a Gentile community, people who had, in the eyes of the religious leaders of the time, no business being invited into this story. It says, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Another way you could translate that would be, so that these people might not crush him. There were so many people that were following Jesus, wanting healing, wanting forgiveness, wanting to see what he was doing and who he was that they were coming out in droves. And as Tim mentioned, this was before the time of Twitter and before the time of Instagram. This was before that knowledge could be disseminated with such ease as it is in our moment in history. This is people who are very intentionally sharing this story of good news and grace and newness and exciting people so much they wanted to show up He had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. People had understood and heard these stories of a man with a paralyzed hand, a person who was actually paralyzed. We've seen uh, people that are oppressed by demons being freed. And these stories had gone out in the region so much so that people just wanted to come and touch the cloak that Jesus was wearing. I can't read that line without thinking of another story later in Mark's gospel. This is in Mark chapter five. It says, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Some commentators like to note that this bleeding would have probably caused this woman to be on the outskirts, on the margins, to be removed from community, to be viewed as, the, as a person who was unclean at that time. This person who had potentially been ostracized and pushed out, hearing that Jesus is in town and just wanting to show up to touch the very hem of his robe. Says she has been suffering, and she's been suffered under a great deal under the care of many doctors. And she had spent all that she had, and instead of getting better, she had grew worse. Here we see at a moment in in history where at times the practices of doctors and the medical professionals could have been pain-inducing more so than pain-relieving. The practices that they attempted weren't the practices that we now know today. And for some people, going to see a doctor might have caused them even more pain. And in the life of this woman, that seems to be the case. She'd spent everything that she had and she has not gotten better. She's just gotten worse. She's at her wit's end. She's got no other resources. She's got nowhere else to go except to Jesus. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. This is where it gets weird because Jesus says this. It says, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now understand, this is weird because at the time there's people to people, shoulder to shoulder, like everybody's around. And for Jesus to ask this question, his disciples and his followers would have said, um... Well, this person, that person, that guy over there, this, like everybody's touching you because we're all shoulder to shoulder. There's nowhere else that we can go. But Jesus asked this question, who touched my clothes? 
You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. Trembling with fear, she tells him why she was driven to this site, why she was bent on just touching a piece of his clothes. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. We see in this story a weird mixture of certain things. We see fear where, the, where this woman is perhaps scared of what Jesus might answer her, perhaps scared that, that this might not work, perhaps scared that in this last-ditch effort to be restored, that she might be found wanting yet again. But we see this mixture of fear of Jesus and what he's going to do after he figures out what's happened and after fearing perhaps a bad result, but we also see the faith of this woman who has this strange mixture of fear and faith. She also has this strange mixture perhaps of doubt and trust. I think at times when you're driven to these moments when you're just completely close to giving up, that it's not as though you're walking in certitude and confidence, but you have perhaps these voices in the back of your mind saying, this isn't going to work. This guy, you've heard stories about him, but you've also heard stories about these doctors that you've gone to visit. You've heard what they can do too. We have these voices, and this isn't just a story of ancient times where this woman who's got this problem and wanting to seek Jesus, I think that this speaks to our context as well, as Christians even, where we sit in the, in the midst of this doubt and trust, and how those two things seem to play off each other. The psalmists make very good use of this all throughout the book of Psalms, specifically in the lament psalms, where they wring their hands and cry and scream out, why, how long, O Lord, will you desert me forever? Yet, I will trust you. And it's this weird combination of doubt and trust, fear and faith. We also see here not a juxtaposition, but, but one who is in wonder and in awe of what Jesus might do. The expectancy and the hope that is a catalyst for this story is inspiring. And I know as I look around this room, a lot of us have spent a large majority of our lives in places like this, whether it be a Christian school or Christian college or church or youth group or fill in the blank with these churchy experiences. And for some of us, we've lost awe and wonder. And we've given up on expecting. And we live as though we are hopeless in the midst of a story that centers on the beauty and grace of Jesus. It says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. A few years ago, I went to opening day at Candom Yards and it was one of the greatest, I can't say greatest moments of my life, it was one of the, the greatest sports viewing moments of my life, which they're pretty few, okay. 
But a lot of people have these moments. I remember when the Ravens won the Super Bowl a few years ago. We don't like to talk about that in my household. Kate, Kate might like to, but I don't like to. But I remember when they were having this parade and people wanted to go and be a part of it and cheer and be excited about their team. The only thing I have to compare that to is opening day with the Orioles where everybody's excited because they haven't lost yet. It's like that, that moment where we can do this. And last year they got really, really close, but it was just one of those times where it was shoulder to shoulder and people all in orange and people were hopeful and people were cheering and people were excited and a lot of people were drunk, which doesn't really fit in. But like we have this, this moment where people are just on the streets and they're excited. N.T. Wright talks about this story in a similar way where he said, what would today's churches have to do to bring people out on the streets as though their team had just won the cup? What is it that churches would have to do? What sort of gospel message would people have to have? And not just a gospel message because talk at times is cheap. What sort of experiences would the church have to be a part of to get people excited about Jesus and about hope again. I think you could ask a different question as well. What would today's churches need to do to recapture a sense of hope and expectancy? I certainly don't wanna turn this into a, a talk where we're guilt-induced to doing things to let the people outside of these walls see and hear about Jesus, but I do want to pose this question for you as individuals as you sit here. Have you forgotten the awe and the wonder that Christ has achieved in your life? Perhaps as you're sitting here, have you ever experienced the goodness of Jesus in a way that is undeniable or has this just been something that we talk about? We make bold claims here. We say things like the gospel changes everything. And I think the question can be raised, do our lives in any way reflect the goodness of God and a transformation that is undeniable and the goodness and grace and mercy and forgiveness that would excite people if they only knew. I think that as we kind of process these stories and we hear uh, these tales of people in years past that are combining fear and faith and they're combining doubt and trust and they're combining in a sense wonder and awe I think that we're looking for something different. Not because those things are wrong, but because at times people aren't allowed to see that in our lives. For some reason, we're scared to let people see that doubt meeting that trust, and we're scared to let people see that fear meeting faith, and we're scared for some reason to be in awe of Jesus and what he does. And I think that as we continue to pursue these stories in the gospel and we hear lines of people that are leaving everything to follow Jesus, that call to us is no different. Are we following? And not only are we following, but is the story and the belief that we have something that's compelling other people to follow as well? Has this become stale and stagnant and routine have we lost awe and wonder? 
Or do we yet again need to be reminded of grace and hope and goodness that's found only through Jesus in his power and in his grace to us as sinful people?